You are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. You know, there's growing pressure on Governor David Ige to relax restrictions on gatherings. At this hour, the Hawaii Events Coalition is rallying at the state capitol. The coalition represents a cross-section of businesses in the live events industry who are pushing back against the COVID restrictions in place, particularly here on Oahu. We talked to Bob Harmon, president of the Hawaii Events Coalition, just before he headed down to that rally, about why the industry is stepping up to make their displeasure known in this way. We come from a number of different uh, companies, uh, several lighting companies, sound companies, DMC destination management companies, weddings. It's really, really a cross-section of people. It's amazing one event, how many people are affected by their success or whether they happen, whether it's just advertising options, whether it's limousines, security that gets hired. A lot of people are involved with a single event. We have over 800 members specifically in the Hawaii Events Coalition. Ultimately, what the goal would be, As restrictions expire in October, we hope that uh, the governor and mayor might consider us a resource and allow us to resume safe, live, structured events. The bottom line is there's a lot of things that have been going on. The second crackdown, if you will, occurred. It was somehow our group has been the vanguard of safety here in Hawaii. We've we've gone out uh, and you know to get COVID trained like we knew we had to be proactive in order to get permission to get back to anywhere near where we were. But somehow, uh, our value uh, as the vanguard of live events was relegated into the uh, background in favor of, well, grouping us with a couple of instances of unregulated events. And there's there's been no line or distinction between the two. We've been successfully putting on events, whether it be concert, whether it's marketplaces. At this point in time, it's you should listen to the science. There are ways to do this. We, you know, we do between contract tracing, vaccinations, and testing and the like to go to events. I I might say that uh, it is far safer than walking into Costco or going to Ross's. I mean, our our groups, you know, are uh, are separated. Our groups are vetted. I think people are are ready. At this point, they, they kind of expect if, if they've been doing the right things, that they, at this point they should be able to enjoy some of the benefits of being on the right side of this. And there are reports that, you know, the governor and the mayors may make some announcement tomorrow about those restrictions. Uh, have you been able to meet with them directly? Not in recent times. We have earlier, and the needle didn't move much. We're in hopes that what won't happen would be okay because currently it's 25 people outdoors and it's 10 people indoors. I'm hoping the outcome isn't simply to double that. Understand that on the other outer islands, events are continuing to happen. It just seems a little unfair that on this particular island, and maybe it's because of the numbers, that the numbers have seriously dropped. And at this point, we need to be able to get some things on the board and, of course, as a business, you know, there's a lot of devastation there, and there's no safety net. You know, the governor's been pretty cautious, citing yes. you know, the health care system and the lack of nurses, you know, because we've had to fly in 
uh, those 650 uh, you know, healthcare workers to help us during this surge. I understand. Again, these events have gone on in the mainland, whether it be uh, sports. I mean, all over the mainland, there are stadiums that are full of people. And the one I think of offhand is Las Vegas, our, our ninth island, if you will. They're pretty strict there as far as the rules are concerned. If you're not vaccinated, you can go and get shot, a, a one shot, and you'll be put into a specific area. For having done so, you cannot un- unmask if that's your entry level. When we're up, at, you know, above 90% of eligible people, meaning above 12, as the CDC counts it, of uh, people have had at least the first vaccination and double vaccination now over 70%. At this point, we should be able to make things that are available, as I say, those who've had the vaccination. If you want to close a great, greater number and understand you're never going to get to 100%. But if you want more people to be influenced to do this, frankly, events like this that, that say, fine, in order to attend this upcoming event or show, um, you're going to have to have proof of vaccination. That's just part of our rules. Or you're going to have to check, you know, test within three days, depending on the promoter or the circumstance. Frankly, it's that peer pressure. Don't you want to join us? That is going to close the uh, the gap here. Can you give us an example of, you know, let's say some events that fell to the wayside well, with the second wave of uh, restrictions that the governor imposed? I can tell you that. You know, we, there are still a couple of shows that are on the uh, the boards at the Boys Health Center. I know a Henry Capono show got pushed off into next year. I know conventions in particular take a long time to settle in groups and the like. And that, as soon as he made that announcement, dozens and dozens of, of groups canceled. Not uh, They need to know early on. And they need to make, make a choice. As far as entertainment events, and I'm pretty close, closely tied to those as, as well, people simply stopped asking because it's a great unknown now you know, as to where we are. But it's not unknown how this can be done safely. Maybe they, they would like to take one of these uh, upcoming shows and let it, let it sell. Let, it, let us use the various disciplines that we, we use in order to vet the crowd, and let's see. With the number of shows that we've been involved with, there's been little or, or, or no indication of any of those events causing any kind of uh, uh, COVID issues at all. And you folks are getting some support uh, today uh, from the film unions, you know, IATSE, uh, you know, and, and the, the unions there, you know, did a lot of work trying to set up protocols to make sure that, you know, we could establish these bubbles early on in the pandemic so that uh, a lot of these uh, film projects could still get underway. Yeah, you know, the, the, the IAA, the IATSE is involved with a lot of the larger shows that we that we do. Uh, they're an important resource uh, for labor for us uh, and for talent. You know, you are correct on the film side, there's there are exemptions for film. But on the uh, entertainment side or conventions or even... Uh, graduations and the like. There's no pass for that yet. I'd like to point out a couple of yin and yang scenarios because there's some irony here. Uh, You know, you can go into a movie theater and watch a film. Exchange that screen, though, with a musician with a guitar, well, then you have a problem. You can go to church. Hundreds of people could be in attendance. But to have a wedding indoors over 10, that's a problem. Beyond Van Gogh, which was held at the Hawaii Convention Center, an event It was designed to be more of a visual museum than a gathering. 
was inherently spaced is it would kind of ruin the whole presentation to have a room full of people because projection was all around you and there was designated uh, places to stand. But nonetheless, that too was closed, though that production continues on across North America and in countries uh, with actually stricter restrictions than our own state. It's just, um, it's interesting to see what's okay and what is not, and it's perplexing. So in your mind, it's a matter of fairness? Well, it is a matter of fairness, but at the same time, people are meeting across the U.S. mainland under great scrutiny, and and events are happening, and they have not been shown to be uh, be the problem that, that they were suspected to be. Why? Because, you know, you can do things, you can go to an open market uh, here and nobody cares. But if we go into a place where you're being checked and you're, you know, uh, was your COVID uh, test recent, um, that is really a mitigating circumstance. Also, there's a, you know, there's a thought that vaccinated people, well, they can get sick too. I mean, people point to that. But there's been studies that say, you know, that that's such a small percentage of those. I mean, if you just look, follow the logic, look, look at the people in hospitals here, you know, the percentage of those vaccinated is a really small percentage of that. And frankly, even if they do get uh, sick again, they don't stay sick for very long by comparison, nor do they uh, get hospitalized nearly as much. So if one person manages to be, you know, ill in, uh, amongst other vaccinated folks, well, again, only only the smallest percentage of them is going to be susceptible. This is something that, that we need to look into. We're never going to get to 100% vaccination. I do not believe you're going to wipe this, uh, this virus out completely. I think it's going to be like a flu. It's something that you're going to learn to live with on some level. That was Bob Harmon, owner of the company Eggshell Lighting and president of the Hawaii Live Vents Coalition. Uh, the group is rallying at the state capitol and at Honolulu Hale to protest the city restrictions and the state's emergency orders to limit group sizes. It maintains uh, professionally managed events can be COVID safe. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy lunch and Sunday brunch at the Open Air Homa Cafe, featuring a menu of island-style fare and refreshments. Details at honolulumuseum.org. You know, many people like to think that America is open to immigrants of all creeds and all colors. But a new book argues that racist immigration policies can be found throughout this country's history. Reese Jones is the chair of the University of Hawaii at Manoa's Department of Geography and the Environment. He spoke with HPR's Jason Ubai about White Borders, which explores the influence of racism on America's immigration policies. The harsh treatment of immigrants has been in the news a lot lately. Um, For Biden, it was images of Border Patrol agents charging at Haitian uh, uh, asylum seekers on horseback and then holding them under uh, a a bridge at the border um, for, during the Trump administration. It was the Muslim ban. It was uh, holding kids in cages. The reaction a lot of people had to these harsh treatment of immigrants at the border was that that it was un-American, that this is not who we are, that this is not what America represents. Um, but unfortunately, what I find in the book is that this is quintessentially American, that um, from the earliest 
foundations of the country through the present day, um, the border and immigration policy of the United States has been um, based on the exclusion of non-white people. It's a reoccurring feature in the country, right? So the first naturalization law in the United States in 1790 uh, said that to become a citizen, you had to be a free white person. And that phrase wasn't removed from citizenship law until 1952. Um, although after uh, the Civil War, um, freed slaves were also added to that category. In terms of immigration laws, the United States did not have any federal immigration laws through the 1870s. Um, so immigrants from Europe were free to come to the United States and settle. Um, as soon as non-white immigrants started to arrive, and the first were large groups of people from China who arrived after the gold rush in California, um, the US passed laws to exclude them. So the first laws were in the 1870s and 1880s, um, which excluded the Chinese. They were called the Chinese Exclusion Acts. Um, and that was followed on very quickly with other exclusionary laws for other groups that arrived. So in 1907, there was the Gentleman's Agreement that excluded Japanese immigrants to the United States. In 1917, uh, the U.S. banned all Asian immigration to the U.S. It created an Asiatic barred zone. And in 1924, um, Congress passed an immigration law that created minuscule immigration quotas for most countries around the world, um, but very large ones for Northern and Western Europe, with the idea to kind of reorient immigration back towards the white foundations of the country. There are some uh, Hawaii connections in the book. Uh, can you talk about Takao Ozawa, who... Um... He was born in Japan and moved to Honolulu in 1906. And, um, you know, when he tried to become a naturalized U.S. citizen, that case went all the way to the Supreme Court. Can you talk a bit about that and what role that played in America's immigration policies? Takeo Ozawa was born in Japan, but got a degree at the University of California, Berkeley, and then moved to Honolulu, where he lived with his family. His children were born uh, in Hawaii and became citizens at birth. And so he decided to apply for citizenship himself. Um, and when he did, his citizenship was denied. Um, and so he contested that all the way to the Supreme Court. And that reached there in 1922. And it was the first time that the Supreme Court considered that rule that only free white people could be citizens in the United States. Um, and unfortunately, they decided that that was the rule um, and denied him his citizenship. And so um, after 1922, the categories of who could be a citizen remained very narrow um, until 1952, when Congress finally ended the free white person policy. I think another interesting part that you explore in the later chapters of your book is the environmental movement and how that morphed into some of the immigration laws that we saw being implemented into the you know, during the Trump administration. Could you talk a, a bit about that? How uh, John Tenton and uh, can you talk a bit about uh, his influence in on immigration policy? Yeah, absolutely. John Tenton has been called the most influential person that most Americans have never heard of. Um, he is this larger than life figure. He was a ophthalmologist and lived in upstate Michigan. Um, he performed 4,000 surgeries over his life, 
Um, but he also founded a huge suite of anti-immigrant organizations that were designed to limit uh, the number of immigrants entering the country. He believed that immigration was a threat to the environment of the United States if there were too many people to move here, but also the culture of the United States if too many non-white immigrants arrived in the country. Um, so many of the groups that he founded are today designated hate groups by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, but nevertheless, they're very influential because John Tanton was able to recruit a lot of wealthy donors to give money to his organizations. Uh, starting in the 1980s, um, people like Warren Buffett gave hundreds of thousands of dollars to his groups. Um, but most importantly, he recruited a woman named Cordelia Scaife May, um, who was an heiress of the Mellon um, uh, fortune. Um, and in the 1990s, she was the wealthiest woman in the entire United States. And when she passed away, she left her entire fortune to um, a foundation that gives money to anti-immigrant hate groups. And so these groups have, over the last 20 years, um, have been extremely influential in our debates about immigration. Um, and they are directly tied to a lot of the figures that ended up in the Trump administration. Um, for example, Jeff Sessions, um, who was a senator, and then the attorney general um, is closely tied to a group called the Center, um, of Center for Immigration Studies. Um, and then uh, Stephen Miller as well is someone who gave keynotes address at these groups um, and used their research to justify the harsh immigration policies of the administration. Um, so Tanton succeeded in this lifelong quest of his to um, bring anti-immigrant uh, thinking back into the mainstream of American politics. Your book ends around the, the end of the Trump uh, administration. And I think, you know, I saw a tweet as well. And, you know, with the recent news of just like people thought with the Biden administration, uh, things would be different. But these uh, policies seem to be persistent across presidential administrations, no matter who's uh, what party's in, in charge. Why, why do you think they, they persist? If we look back at the history of immigration laws in the U.S., it's been a bipartisan affair. Um, they, the rules typically passed with bipartisan support. For example, even in 2006, when the U.S. voted to put walls on the border uh, with Mexico, um, then Senators Barack Obama and Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton all voted in favor of putting that, that on the border in the Secure Fence Act. You know, I think that immigration policy is something that tends to have bipartisan support because there's not a strong enough constituency in the United States for the rights of immigrants, right? The, um, and it's often an easy way for politicians to demonize an other and to blame problems on someone else. Um, rather than looking at the factors that might be directly behind them. I think that Donald Trump was particularly good at this. Um, when he, during his campaign, took a wide range of complex issues around globalization, jobs moving out of the country, wages stagnating in the United States, and immigrants arriving into the country and boiled all that down to, we need to build a wall on the border, right? And took that symbol to, to represent all of these larger issues. Um, and so by demonizing that other, it, it builds that support for him. Um, and I think it's a trend that we see across the history of the United States that, um, that immigrants tend to get blamed for problems. Um, one of the things that's striking when I looked back through 
the history of the early immigration laws, the Chinese exclusion laws through the present day was the, the through line, the continuity in the language that people used. If you look at the speeches against the Chinese in the 1880s, it's an invasion that's going to change the culture of the United States. They take away American jobs. Um, they bring diseases, they bring drugs with them into the United States. It's the exact same things that we hear today when people talk about immigration from Mexico or from Central America. Um, so the, the demonization of immigrants um, is something that has happened throughout the history of the country. Reese, uh, you're a white man, and I understand, you know, reading through this, that I think these are a lot of issues that a lot of folks might not think is racist, but um, you know, might be offended by some of the, the the arguments made in this book. So what role did your whiteness play in, in writing this book? I think to me, this is something that white people need to address because the people who have en enacted these racist immigration policies throughout the history have been white people. Um, the the civil rights movement, for example, has criticized these the, the actions of white people. Um, immigrants' rights groups today criticize the actions of the government. Um, I think the problem is often white people, right? So to me, it's important as a white male um, to talk about these things and to um, be frank about the racist history of immigration laws. Um, the immigration laws that we have today were established for the purpose of racial exclusion. We didn't have any immigration laws um, at the federal level in the United States until non-white people started to arrive. Um, so the, the entire basis of the idea that the country should limit immigration is based on a racist premise. Um, and so to me, I think it's important to talk about this and to raise this issue and to understand the history of the country. That was Reese Jones, UH geography professor and author of the book White Borders, The History of Race and Immigration in the United States from Chinese Exclusion to the Border Wall. The book will be released uh, next week, Tuesday, October 12th. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Tioki Trading, featuring HDC water purification systems for pools, spas, and the whole home. Serving Hawaii for 40 years, learn more by calling 834-2722. You know, joining us for today's uh, Reality Check segment is Honolulu Civil Beat business reporter Stuart Yurton. He has a story about Mana Up and their efforts to diversify our economy. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, Mana Up, I know we've done stories with them. They're really looking for uh, up-and-coming uh, businesses. Uh, yes, they are. Um, and, and, again, as you mentioned, they're a business accelerator, so they take uh, young companies, they provide training and uh, help them overcome the issues involved with uh, scaling up their businesses, um, all the sorts of challenges that would go with that from uh, production and distribution and everything. Um, and now they have a new, uh, a new thing, a new tool. They're offering uh, people or companies, which is money. So that now they're offering actual venture capital. I mean, that's always nice. <laughs> we need, I mean, <laughs> yeah. everybody needs money. <laughs> right. So they're offering capital to these companies. Um, it's a $6.3 million fund. They weren't able to tell me exactly who 
uh, the investors are, but they're institutional and, um, and, and public and private investors, including individuals. Um, and the first two investments are in a, a coffee roasting company, Big Island Coffee Roasters, and uh, something called Kohana Rum, which is here on Oahu, um, starting in Kunia, but they've expanded. They have growing sugarcane um, in Kunia and in Wailua now, and uh, they make rum out of it. Yeah, and I poked my head into their uh, location there at Kunia when they first started. Uh, you know, I mean, kudos to them for, you know, picking up with this idea, uh, finding a niche market and running with it. Yeah, and so this loan, and again, they wouldn't tell me exactly how much it is. It's somewhere between 100000 and $600,000, they would say. Um, well, or this investment capital, I should say, not a loan, um, will allow this company to go from uh, producing about 10,000 uh, cases a day uh, to about 70,000 cases a day of rum. So uh, they can export this. Again, it's a value-added product. Um, there are jobs related to it um, involved in distilling and, and taking the sugar cane, pressing it, getting the juice out, and then um, turning that into rum. So uh, it's an economic development story for Hawaii and uh, this this little company that's only a few years old, Mana Up, um, is really really doing some good work to help do this. Yeah, I mean, you know, with uh, the uh, the rum company, I mean, you know, we don't have sugar anymore, the sugar industry, but they've managed to, I guess, produce enough of it to keep their, uh, uh, you know, rum in business. Right. Well, that's the thing. They're expanding. So they have gone up to 300 acres now of sugarcane that they're growing, and they're they're trying to make it uh, kind of cool. They're growing this um, heirloom varieties of sugarcane. They're, you know, you talk to the uh, co-founder, Jason Brand. He said these are, you know, uh, 800- or 1,000-year-old varieties of sugarcane that, you know, were descendants of the uh, uh, canoe plant sugarcane that came over here. So they have a vision, and um, they're executing it, and it, it's really it's pretty interesting. And again, this company, Mana Up, is sort of a champion of all these companies and really helping them uh, grow. Yeah, no, I mean, that's great because, you know, we hear so much about diversifying our economy, and if you can help these, um, you know, local companies thrive uh, and and find markets uh, offshores. I mean, that can only be a good thing. Right. I mean, that's the idea. They want to export um, Hawaii in a way that is is authentic, authentically Hawaiian in some way, and um, can, can bring money into Hawaii and jobs without necessarily relying on tourists. Uh, that's their vision. And again, they seem to be executing. And it's not just... Um, value-added ag companies, although this is a lot of it. So we have coffee and we have sugar, um, and but they also do clothing, they do household wares, um, uh, all sorts of things, any kind of consumer packaged good. Uh, they do health and beauty products, this sort of thing. So it's, it's a really interesting thing. And now, again, they've stepped up in a short time and now are providing venture capital. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a, a really an amazing thing. And uh, uh, you know, we wish them uh, success in the future because their success and the success of these small businesses, uh, like I said, every little bit helps our economy. Right, and that's the idea. We, everybody says we want we want this. So here's an example of somebody stepping up and doing it. All right. Well, thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you. 
That was business reporter Stuart Yurton today with today's reality check. You can read his story online at civilbeat.org. Celebrated storyteller, educator, and poet Makio Malo passed away last Saturday, just a week shy of his 87th birthday. He was one of the last remaining residents of Kalopapa. We've shared Malo's story on this show. He was exiled as a young teen to the Molokai Peninsula after he was diagnosed with Hansen's disease, then known as leprosy. Medical advancements in the 1950s allowed him to travel back and forth between Kalopapa and Halimohalu Treatment Center on Oahu. He would go on to earn his degree in Hawaiian studies from the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and he wrote a book entitled My Name is Makia, a Memoir of Kalapapa. Here's a clip from an interview that Pamela Young did with Malo. It aired on HPR in 2013 uh, as part of a piece by reporter Noe Tanigawa. I had no understanding of the disease. Few did in 1947 when Elroy Makia Malo was diagnosed with Hansen's disease, a bacterial infection that creates lesions, ulcers, and numbness in the coldest parts of the body, the ears, fingers, nose. Hansen's disease is spread through coughs and sneezes, but 95% of people are naturally immune. Others are not. Malo watched his older brother and sister get bundled off to Hawaii's, quote, leper colony on the north side of Molokai, the isolated landing at Kalaupapa. And then when the day my dad and I were reported to have the disease, and again we went to Dr. Chanun's office, they snipped our ear to get blood samples. And then about an hour later, we were sitting in the waiting room. Dr. Chanun comes and he says, Mr. Marlowe, I have good news for you. You don't have the disease. And then he waited. But I'm afraid, Mr. Muller, your son Elroy does. And then before Dr. Chandler said anything else, my dad, he said, Oh, doctor, doctor, uh, I'd like my boy to go to Kalaupapa today. When Malo arrived, there were about 400 residents at Kalaupapa. Many didn't walk around. They didn't go to the airport walking or Kalawao. They didn't walk around town even. Malo says only five to seven of the patients actually walked the town because walking often led to lesions on their feet. Before he lost his vision, hands, and feet, Malo loved to hunt. I was too active, yeah. The worst part is that our feet don't feel. So more you go, the more fun you have. But in time, the ulcers get worse, the pain increases. That's when my whole world started to crumble. It was scary. News personality Pamela Young put Malo's current memoir together by combining years of conversations, previously written material, and his many stories. You went to university, you taught there, you traveled all over the world, you married and fell in love. Despite everything, you're pretty lucky, aren't you? Very. Surviving so long. What little chances we had of doing so much, we enjoyed it. When you were in that condition, and you know life is going on on outside, you think, oh, what the heck? I like to go down the bar. I like to drink soda. You know, I like to eat ice cream, you know. We had movies twice a week, free movies. We had 
three bars open. Not that there were many people who drank, but they'd go there and eat ice cream, candy, and stuff. It was nice to meet some of them. They didn't let the disease hold them down. The sun said, oh, club papa, smiles through the evening rain. My island of dreams means so much to me. Then the sun said, oh, club papa, will be a dream come true. That was part of an interview with Kalopapa resident Makiu Malo that first aired on HPR in 2013. And Honolulu harpist Ruth Friedman is a nurse who spent a decade at Kalopapa tending to Hansen's disease patients, including Makiu Malo. She shared that Malo and residents knew her by her nickname, Rudy Tootie. Friedman reached out to us when she learned of his passing and shared that Malo was the first college graduate from Kalopapa and had traveled to Rome for the canonization of Father Damien and then Mother Marian Cope. Here's part of the conversation we had with Friedman about a heart music for healing earlier this year. Now, you were a nurse at Kalopapa, and you brought your harp with you. Yes. <laughs> it's my furniture. It follows me everywhere. It really is. It's my treasure, and it's my distraction, and I only picked it up in college. So you were able to uh, play this harp for the residents there at Kalapapa. Correct. But the one thing is that it was the sister who played the organ, and I think it helped me get that job. So they put it into the church, and the sister there would have me accompany whatever they were doing for uh, the choir, a beautiful choir of the patients in Latin. They couldn't change because so many patients had become blind. So it was sort of known as last Latin mass in Hawaii. And this is where, where I played. But once I heard a black man singing. He wasn't black, but the medicine turned his skin dark. And he was just singing, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. So I took him, walked him over to the church. The harp had just come in. And I sat him down, and I asked him to sing it, and I played with the harp. Thank goodness I had that in my notebook. And his voice was so deep, so resonant, so heartfelt. And the height of the little church there, St. Francis Church, was so much that it carried everything. And he just sang with all his heart, and... Then we made a little program that I recorded the next day. And also, so that he could um, sort of recover in between songs, I would play a solo. So it's every other one, but I think we have five of his songs. And he is, even to this day, not quite able to converse too well, but he certainly sings. That was harpist Ruth Friedman recalling her time accompanying Kalapapa residents during Mass, a group that frequently included Makio Malo. Friedman also shared this special recording of him.
beautiful. Mahalo, Ruth, Rudy Tudy Friedman, and aloha to Kalapapa's cultural treasure. Think of Makiomalo on Sunday, his 87th birthday. And that's our show for today. Tomorrow we talk to the National Guard about mandatory vaccines, and we re- revisit our conversation about Waikiki with Hawaii Tourism Authority head John DeFries. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.